the teachings of the Brahma-viharas are um, a practice that you might not know you're doing while you're here. <clears throat> the Brahma-viharas, the word, the phrase Brahma-vihara uh, means um, king godly abode, Brahma abode, Br- Brahma home or house. Um, Brahma, and it's often translated not so much as uh, godly or or um, kingly, but as um, divine or sublime. That these are the divine or sublime homes or realms of uh, reality. And they are, um, you know them, because we talk about them a lot, but we don't always talk about them in this context of the Brahma-viharas. We more, they tend to get emphasized individually um, as, as, as we've already been doing on this retreat as metta or loving kindness and compassion and um, uh, karuna, mudita, which is uh, joy, and um, equanimity or upekka. Actually, you, you all live in the Brahma-viharas, have you noticed? <laughs> you live in these divine abodes. It's actually, it's, in America we like to make things very literal, right? <laughs> Each of these expressions of the awakened heart, and that's one way you could think about the phrase divine abode. Each of these expressions of the awakened heart has a unique flavor and uh, place. And it's a, it's a beautiful system. They, they provide us with a, a guideline or a roadmap for the way the awakened heart can respond to all of life. And, um, you know, we've been practicing some metta, um, which is mostly translated as loving kindness, but also sometimes translated simply as friendliness. And so it's a kind of friendliness towards all beings, uh, warmth. And I, I always think of the Dalai Lama when I think of this, because he says, you know, he meets so many people in his life, in his travels, and he says he meets each person as if they're an old friend. And that's his, that's his basic orientation to life, friendliness towards beings. And so metta is the foundation, a kind of unconditional care or friendliness. And then in the light of suffering, then the heart um, has this um, a morph-like quality then to turn to into compassion. But then the awakened heart, it's not just friendly, but it, it responds to reality. And that responding when there's suffering, it means compassion arises quite naturally. Uh, Gil talked about it quite a bit the other night, compassion and the importance of compassion. Um, when in the light of um, goodness, in the light of fruition, in the light of happiness, joy arises quite naturally. And equanimity is considered the wisdom quality of heart, the wisdom quality of heart. It's beautiful. I love that the heart has its own wisdom. And the wisdom is to see things as they are, to see how it is, to really be have a clearness and balance with the way things are whether they're just kind of friendly or open, or whether things are um, difficult, 
or whether they're, they're fun or beautiful. That there's also a kind of equanimity within all of that. And one way you can think about your meditation practice, which I think we've been emphasizing some explicitly, but even more implicitly, is, is you, could, you can view mindfulness as a kind of um, these qualities of heart being inherent in mindfulness. Um, that this friendly, we cultivate a friendliness towards our experience. And when there's suffering, compassion arises naturally, when we see that we're suffering. When we, this willingness to come into contact will bring the compassion. And that when there's some sense of ease or peace, or um, even concentration and settledness, or a sense of fruition or freedom, there's joy. And it comes quite naturally. And within it all is this ground of equanimity, this ground of being willing to see things as they are, moment by moment. And you can notice which quality of heart is here in your practice. And I would like to somewhat continue um, from what John was talking about last night. Really, it's a continuation of, of all the talks that um, Sharda placing wholesomeness or the goodness of practice at the center. And then Gil was talking about both um, mindfulness or f as friendliness and, and love as compassion and, and compassion. And then John began to talk, to reflect last night about impermanence, the truth of impermanence, and also the truth of the selfless nature of things. Um, the, the quality of emptiness found in uh, anatta, uh, emptiness being more the broader concept of shunyata, the, the unsubstantial, uh, ephemeral, unsolid nature of everything whether it be humans, whether it be um, things or feelings or thoughts, whether it be places or worlds, that, that because of their impermanent nature, as John was saying, they're empty, inherently empty of any eternal existence. But what's nice, what I find really nice, is that selflessness is not empty. Or maybe I could put it better, emptiness is not empty. Have you noticed? Look at everything that's here in the emptiness. Sometimes people have some concern when they hear talk about selflessness. They're like, well, does that mean I disappear? Or I won't be here? Or, or sometimes they think emptiness means everything is dry and dull and kind of dead, and they're going to lose their passion if they discover emptiness. Don't worry about it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just not a problem that way. Truly. Emptiness is quite full. Another way you might reflect on it, or we could think about it, is, you know, when the Buddha talks about um, awakening or nibbana, he, he, he rarely ever describes it in anything but the most bare and poetic terms. And he, he uses certain euphemisms, euphemisms for nibbana like the unconditioned or the unborn or the deathless. 
right? This is how he describes it. He doesn't say, this is what it's like, and look for this, and here's how you'll know it, and da-da-da. He never does that, for many wise reasons. But what he does do is he describes the awakened heart. He says, when greed, hatred, and delusion are absent, here's what you will find. You will find love and care and joy and balance or serenity. And so I, I find that very um, heartful that the Buddha describes what awakening looks like, not so much to say, oh, this is, you know, you'll have this, this, but when the heart is free, these are how it, this is how it expresses itself. <clears throat> so I'd like to talk about, we, we've talked a bit about both loving kindness and compassion. Tonight I'd like to talk about the quality of heart that's known as mudita, or joy. And the root of the word in Pali, it means to be pleased, to have a sense of gladness. To be pleased or to have a sense of gladness. And it's often translated as either appreciative joy or empathic joy, or most, mostly you'll hear it in the Theravada tradition as sympathetic joy. Sympathetic joy. Um, personally, I like a little more the, the words gladness or just joy. I, I find sympathetic joy or any of the ones that have an adjective before it a little more um, um, limited. And so I like the sense of joy. And um, I very much agree with Thich Nhat Hanh when he says this. He says, um, sympathetic joy or altruistic joy, the happiness we feel when others are happy, are too limited. It discriminates between self and others. A deeper definition of mudita is a joy that is filled with peace and contentment. We rejoice when we see others happy, but we rejoice in our own well-being as well. How can we feel joy for another person when we do not feel joy for ourselves? Joy is for everyone, he says with an exclamation point. And I like that flavor of mudita. And you may have experienced it on the retreat. Joy comes. It's, remember, the Brahma Viharas are sublime. They're not, um, they're not emotions in the way we think of them. I, I, and this is my belief, that emotions in the Brahma Viharas are quite um, connected and related and it's almost like the essence of the emotions are really what the Brahma Viharas are. That often the emotions are a little bit gross compared to the refinement of the Brahma Viharas or the sublime quality of the Brahma Viharas. Um, that they're the essence of love or joy or compassion. Um, so they might not have the big uh, display that you might feel like when you fall in love. It might not be look like that kind of love, but you know that there's this, the heart opens and there's love. Or um, the compassion may not even have, you may not be crying or, you know, you, you might not even be shook up in the face of pain, but the heart resonates and you can feel the compassion. 
Um, and the joy may not be real big joy. It may not be like being intoxicated or, or overly excited or any big deal at all. But you know it in your, you know the joy of a concentrated mind. Many of you have expressed that joy. And it's not like you jump up and down, but there's a pleasure. <laughs> At least I hope you're not jumping up and down. But there's a pleasure or a delight or a joy in just the mind concentrating. Somebody said they were walking today and all the thoughts just stopped. And they just walked. And it was wonderful. I think that's more the flavor of mudita, of the sublime, or really what's called in Buddhism, divine joy. It's, it's how Buddhism relates to divinity. You know, we don't talk about that so much in, in Buddhism. But these, these qualities of heart are considered divine because I, I, I think it, the way it works is it's be, it, in the cosmology is this is how the, the beings in the divine realms live all the time with these, these qualities of heart. Now, it's said that mudita is the hardest brahma-vihara to develop, that it's the most difficult, um, that metta comes easier, compassion comes more naturally, even equanimity is somehow uh, more familiar, that joy is more difficult. I'll say a little more about what, why that may be later. Um, but it often is considered that it needs to be rediscovered. Because um, <clears throat> it's not exactly the joy of our society. It's not exactly the joy of kind of winning or of competition or of having uh, or of keeping things particularly. It's more sublime. Uh, Nyanapanakatera, who writes beautifully about the Brahma-viharas, and you can, you can just go online and type in Brahma-viharas, and he'll probably be one of the people who comes up if you want to research this at some point. He says, let us teach real joy to men and women. Many have unlearned it. Un many have unlearned it. Life, though full of woe, holds also sources of happiness and joy unknown to most. Let us teach people to seek and to find real joy within themselves and to rejoice with the joy of others. Let us teach them to unfold their joy to ever sublimer heights. <clears throat> the poet Galway Canal echoes this need of us for us to relearn a little bit sometimes. Many of you have heard this poem, but it's so beautiful, worth, worth hearing again. He says, the bud, the bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower from within. Excuse me, even for those things that don't flower, for everything flowers from within of self-blessing. Though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on the brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch, it is lovely, until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. 
as St. Francis put his hand on the creased forehead of the sow and told her in words and touch blessings of earth on, on the sow. And sow began remembering all down her thick length from the earthen snout all the way through the fodder and slops to the spiritual curl of the tail. From the hard spininess spiked out from the spine down through the great broken heart to the sheer blue milken dreaminess spurting and shuddering from the 14 teats into the 14 mouths sucking and blowing beneath them the long perfect loveliness of sow. It's a Dharma poem. I love this poem. And it just recently I realized he says the bud stands for all things. And I realized the root of the word Buddha is bud, bud. I love that. The Buddha stands for all things, the bud. And and even the description of um, what it means to um, relearn our loveliness. How do we do that? We, we put a hand and we retell ourselves in word and touch, which is what we're doing here. We're retelling ourselves. We're saying, oh yeah, this is here now. So we're telling, you know, we're noting, right? This is noting practice. We're telling ourselves what's here and we're being contactful with the experience. And what opens is the awakened heart. And it happens amazingly on these retreats that people's heart open, your heart's opened. You may not even know how open your heart is right now, but it happens. It's kind of magical. I've been teaching a bit about the Brahma Viharas these days. I really, I love teaching about them. And I've been teaching about joy a lot. And sometimes people get a little nervous about that. They, well, uh, nervous in the sense where there's uh, some concern or uh, it's a kind of care concern about um, the difficulty of our time and joy and the relationship between the two. Sometimes as people feel conflicted, like how can I feel joy because there's so much suffering in the world. And one of the beauties is the, of the Brahma Viharas is they don't contradict each other, they support each other. That um, joy keeps uh, compassion from becoming depressed or overwhelmed in a sense. And compassion balances joy from being kind of Pollyanna and not seeing, you know, and also equanimity also balances uh, joy by seeing the way things are. And um, it's not one or the other. They're all expressions of the awakened heart. Again, from Jnanapanika Tara, who says, noble and sublime joy is not foreign to the teaching of the enlightened one. And I, he uses some kind of times archaic language, but I like it. He says, wrongly, the Buddha's teaching is sometimes considered a doctrine espousing melancholy. Far from it, the Dharma leads step by step to an ever purer and loftier joy. 
this is a path of joy. Did you know that? <laughs> it's hard to tell sometimes, huh? I, I, sometimes I think we do a little bit of disservice in that way, that maybe we need to speak of it more. The Buddha did. He says, live in joy, in love, even among those who hate. Live in joy, in health, even among the afflicted. Live in joy, in peace, even among the troubled. Look within, be still, free from fear and attachment. Know the sweet joy of the way. And he placed a tremendous value on joy. And the importance of recognizing joy, seeing it, realizing joy, realizing the joy of practice itself. And his followers were said to um, have this beautiful countenance, this beautiful uh, presence where people would recognize their joy. Um, one king described the Buddha, Buddha's followers as joyful and elated, jubilant and exalted, enjoying the spiritual life with faculties pleased, free from anxiety, serene, peaceful, and living with a gazelle's mind. I had, to, I had to go to the commentaries for that part about the gazelle's mind, which meant that they were lighthearted. Isn't that nice? My wish for you is may you live with a gazelle's mind. <laughs> really. I wish it for all of us. It's a really beautiful quality to develop, a very wholesome quality, and, and actually a very skillful and supportive quality in practice, to practice with a little bit of lightheartedness. And, you know, selflessness is an interesting word and idea, and um, maybe the Buddha said that, um, but he definitely talked about what's not self, or not being identified with things that aren't self. And I often feel when we're lighthearted, we don't take ourselves so seriously. And that's also the flavor of selflessness. We see that we're where we are, we're, you know, we suffer at times, we're happy at times, or we're, you know, we're awake at times, we're not, but we don't have to take, take it all too seriously. And there's a, a lightness of heart. It's the gazelle's mind at that point that we can be lighthearted. <clears throat> and again, I, I, I wonder if we sometimes, it's a little, a little bit, I could get in trouble for this, but that we, we overemphasize uh, suffering. Maybe you can't do that in Buddhism, but sometimes I wonder because um, often people don't recognize their joy. Because may, maybe, I'm reflecting on this with you, maybe because we put so much emphasis on the suffering. And compassion is, you know, compassion is like a whole teaching. As Gil said, it, it's not just the Brahma-Vihara. That's one of the two wings of practice, right? As I was thinking about this today, I thought, well, maybe we should have joy. It should be wisdom and joy. How would that be for the two wings of practice? And I thought, oh, no, then we'd be Sufis, right? <laughs> you know, they have those nice wings. <laughs> so maybe we can't go that far. 
But maybe we don't need to undervalue it. And maybe we need to value it a little more. Uh, Andre Gide wrote, he said, Know that joy is rarer, more difficult, and more beautiful than sadness. Once you make this all-important discovery, you must embrace joy as a moral imperative. How's that? This is your instruction now. You must embrace joy. And it's, it's not always easy. Just as, just as our suffering challenges our identity, actually our joy and happiness can also challenge our identity. That we may be identified a little or wrapped around the idea that we shouldn't be happy. Or again, you know, the world's suffering. What right do I have? This is, you know, some of you may have actually heard this teaching, right? When you were growing up, you know, you shouldn't be so happy. Something bad will happen. You know, oh, a few people have heard this. You know, and we're afraid to enjoy our joy at times. Even on retreat, I've seen people be a little aversive to their. I don't want to get too attached to my joy. And I mean, you don't, but, well, maybe first you need to. Maybe first you need to investigate what that is, see what happens. And then if you're suffering, you won't be attached to the joy anymore. You'll be suffering. So how to cultivate joy. And that's a funny way to think about it, given that as I understand it, the Buddha said, this is what our heart is when greed, hate, and aversion are present. It's not that we actually cultivate the joy. We cultivate the release of greed and, and, um, and um, aversion and confusion, excuse me. We, we cultivate release. We cultivate letting go. And then we then pay attention to what's here. And what's here are these qualities of heart that are sublime and beautiful and divine. It helps to recognize it, like Wendell Berry said, like the Buddha teaches in mindfulness. It's helpful to begin to recognize joy. And Thich Nhat Hanh is very interesting about it. He says, when we have a toothache, when we have a toothache, we know that not having a toothache is a pleasurable feeling. But when we do not have a toothache, most of us are unaware of this pleasant feeling. <laughs> Only after we become blind will we be aware that having eyes to see the blue sky and the white clouds is miraculous. When we can see, we rarely are aware of that miracle. Practicing meditation is to be aware of both what is painful and what is miraculous. Happiness is the nourishment of the meditator, and it is not necessary to look for it outside of ourselves. Practicing meditation is to be aware of both what is painful and what is miraculous. And what is miraculous is sitting in your seat right now. What is miraculous is, as John was saying, is behind the eyes. Is what hears and sees and knows. And it's already here. 
and it gets obscured and we lose sight, but we also know it. We also know it. You know it. And so to begin to recognize it consciously is part of meditation practice, is part of mindfulness practice. And with that, there are these qualities that we see that, that help that. Curiosity, interest, one of the factors of enlightenment, a sense of awe at times. I was noticing, um, I took one little bike ride um, and I was riding in the early morning, you know, in the gray, and all of a sudden there was this beautiful white heron just on, just on the other side of the road from me, you know, standing regally, nobly, and the delight and the joy of just seeing it. Or, you know, we sometimes when I walk up um, from the yurt back to the back door of the kitchen, right by the, where, the, where the guardrail starts, on the left, there's this bare, skinny little tree with three white buds coming out of it. And it's just beautiful. And it brings delight, happiness, joy. Just like that. Just to, to open our eyes. And you've also had experiences of this. You've seen something in nature or in yourself. Or sometimes it's just walking into this room and the joy of the silence. I mean, it's beautiful, really. You walk in, you almost don't even have to work too hard at this point. At least that's my experience. I come in, I'm like riding your meditation. It's like, oh, this is, this is delicious. Thank you. You know, and there's this joy of the practice and gratitude. All incredibly wholesome states of heart and mind. Ryokan, my beloved Zen teacher, said, The bamboo grove in front of my hut, every day I see it a thousand times, yet never tire of it. May we all have those eyes that can see things now, fresh, here, in the moment, alive. <clears throat> Now, I said that the, this is considered the most difficult Brahma-Vahara to develop, um, and maybe one of the most important in that way. One of the things, and I, my guess is that everybody here has seen this, one of the things that blocks our joy is self-judgment. Anybody not have any self-judgment during this retreat? It's a pandemic. It's really amazing. That, I mean, it's beyond pandemic. It's a deep, deep, considered a deep kalesa or habit in the human heart and mind. Um, you know, the, we can talk about both self-judgment and the comparing mind together a bit. Um, and a lot of our work here as teachers is to try and help you see the judgments that are here. The ideas that, for one reason or another, we all have about how we're supposed to be, who we're supposed to be, what's supposed to happen, when it's supposed to happen, what we're supposed to feel, you know, 
and and to and also to see the standard that we're holding ourselves to as opposed to being mindful which has nothing to do with any of that being mindful is just seeing what's happening as it's happening moment by moment and so we hopefully help support you to begin to recognize, be mindful of, judgment. Um, I find judgment to be maybe the most pervasive hindrance in practice. That once we can start to either not believe our judgment, not have it come so frequently, or, or cathect so fully to it, not identify with it so much, the Dharma unfolds quite well without our judgment. You know, it just does. Your, your heart is already here. Your body's here. Your, and then your mindfulness can just happen. You can be mindful of what's here. And the Dharma can unfold. So anything I can do to help um, steal away your judgment, I would love to do. And, you know, there's many, many skillful means to work with judgment, both here on retreat and outside of retreat. And I encourage people to use a variety of skillful means to learn about it, study about it, and to begin to find your freedom. And this is another kind of paying attention to joy, like Thich Nhat Hanh was talking about the toothache. Notice when there's no judgment. Notice what your experience is when you're not judging yourself, when you're not condemning yourself, when you're not being harsh with yourself, when you're not comparing yourself, you know, in, in the sense of being less than. And of course, the comparing mind is often a part of it, right? Isn't it fun to go out and walk with everybody? <laughs> and compare how you're doing? <laughs> or, or how about in the eating practice? Anybody compare what's happening in the dining hall? Happens like that. Happens immediately. Our minds do that. In, in the classical texts, it said that the comparing mind doesn't release until the fourth stage of enlightenment. The, it stays through the third stage of enlightenment. And there's only four stages, right? So you could be at the third stage. You could be a non-returner is the poetic name for that. It means you'll, you'll never return on this realm again. You're totally free in that sense. But you may be comparing, I'm a better non-returner than that <laughs> non-returner. <laughs> that it's a deep, deep habit of mind. And uh, so uh, one reason why I like to mention how deep it is, because then it's easier for us to be compassionate about it. And then the more compassionate we are about it, maybe we don't have to even be bothered by it. Maybe it doesn't even have to stop. But maybe we don't have to believe it. It's just comparing. It's not true. That I can assure you. It's... um, it's actually called conceit in, uh, in Buddhism. It's, the word's translated as conceit. And there are three conceits. There's a conceit that you're, I'm better than somebody. There's a conceit that I'm worse than somebody. And there's a conceit that I'm the same as somebody, equal. It's also considered conceit. 
because it still posits this separate, solidified, reified sense of self and other, which may not be how it really is. So these two are really, they make it a little difficult for us to feel our joy naturally. Um, There's also within, related to this, is a kind of scarcity mentality. And I don't know if this is for all cultures so much, but I think it's interesting here in the West, we have such a strong scarcity. If somebody else has it, then I won't have it, is often the feeling. If somebody else is happy, well, I'm not going to be happy. Or if they succeed, then I'm not going to succeed. And maybe it's part of our competitive culture, I don't know, or the, or the, the nature of the way capitalism works, you know, the, the so-called law of the fittest, you know, some, some allusion to Darwin there in capitalist philosophy. Um, um, but we seem to have it. Um, and it's, it's painful. It's dukkha. And it's not true. One of the beauties of the Brahma-viharas is they're considered limitless or boundless or immeasurable. That's their nature. There's no limit to them. They, they, aren't, they aren't limited by, um, by beings or by place or by realm or by time or space. There's an endless well of love and joy and kindness and wisdom. And one way we could think of it is that not that we have to dig into the well, we came, we are from that well. And then of course the basic Buddhist um, obstacle is attachment. That the attachment actually kills the joy. And there's a beautiful couplet from Blake, really the whole Dharma maybe. He says, he who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy. But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. He who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. Really, it's the, it's the wisdom part of the joy, is that we see how things are. The joy, like everything, comes and goes, the impermanence John talked about last night. But there's no reason not to enjoy, to recognize, to enjoy, to kiss the joy, to love it, knowing that it goes, because that's the nature of everything. Two little last pieces I'll say about what might block joy. One is over-intoxication. I'm not going to say much about that, but kind of over-excitement. We're, um, oh, how can I say this? One way I think about this is that the, our barometer is set very high in terms of, um, of how we like to experience things. 
it's not set to the refined level of the Brahma Viharas. It's set to a grosser level that is displayed all over our society. You know, you have to be really happy and you have to be really, you know, fulfilled and you have to be really, you know, it's, it's, there's this overemphasis a little bit. And that it's, it takes a while for us to let go of that and relax into a more sublime level of experience. And so we're used to kind of over-excitation to th- and thinking that's happiness. And that, that can happen at times, and that's fun and great. But it may not be the Brahma-Vihara quality. It may be related, again, that the Brahma-Vihara, that in there may be the essence of joy, but it may not be as... Um, we may find ourselves always grasping for that overemphasized kind of joy. And then the last thing I'll say is, this is a little, I haven't seen this in a Buddhist text particularly, but something that I believe, which is about knowing. That our knowing sometimes blocks our joy. And we have a tremendous amount of knowledge. And knowledge is not a bad thing, it's a good thing. But often it limits our, the freshness of our experience. And so I'm, I'm, tying, I'm going to tie this back to what I said earlier. And so it doesn't necessarily, our knowledge often will dampen our sense of curiosity or interest or awe or mystery. And the mystery of life is always right here. And so the knowing does, it doesn't mean you have to get rid of your knowing or deny it. We want to use the relative knowing. We just don't want to let it become such a thick veil that we're not in touch with the reality of now, which is mysterious and beautiful and poignant and tender. And I could go on and on with adjectives because it's everything depending on what's happening now. And so sometimes it's helpful just to notice that we know, but also to notice that we don't know. And letting the don't know be one of the lenses through we see or feel or experience now. Like when you're, even with something you know forever, one of the little games I play with myself on retreat at a certain point, I'll be working with the breath, I may be very concentrated, and then I'll say, okay, Eugene, you have no idea what a breath is and then see what that next breath actually feels like. Now the Brahma Viharas are both an expression of the awakened heart. They're also formal practices, like we've been doing metta formally. And um, some of the flavor, one day when I did the metta, I gave it a compassion flavor. And John said he did a little bit of the flavor of uh, mudita today because he knew that I was going to talk about this. And um, you can do whole retreats where you just do uh, Brahma Vihara practice. Um, And you'll go through metta and um, karuna and mudita and uh, upekka. And different, different phrases you'll use. And the phrases for um, mudita, uh, for example, are something like, may your good fortune increase, or may you have happiness in the causes of happiness, and even may you be happy, or may you be filled with joy. I wish this for you. This is a little more the flavor of mudita, of joy. 
daily life is an interesting place to recognize the Brahma Viharas. Because they're, of course, they're there when we're relaxed, open, non-grasping, non-clinging. They show themselves. And sometimes you can do a little bit of practice. You can do, you can cultivate. Here's one of the ways you could cultivate mudita, is to think about someone who brings you joy. And it's not just the joy of possession that you, you know, that sometimes we have in relationship, but that more sublime joy, the uh, kind of um, wholesome might be the right word, or you just know that it's good. There's goodness in the joy. That, that's a little more how I think of it. I don't use wholesome so much, but these days I, it's like I can feel the goodness. And you can notice who comes to mind for you. What person or being or could be an animal sometimes really brings joy to people. Kind of deep, deep, beautiful, sublime joy. One of the people who brought, has brought joy for me over the years is Mr. Rogers. And it wasn't always so. At first when I saw Mr. Rogers, I, I kind of had a, I wasn't always in the Dharma exactly. I mean, not in the formal Dharma. But, and I was a little bit, had a hippie, radical, hipster kind of uh, life identity for a while. And so Mr. Rogers was like totally square. I mean, really, I was like, where is that at? This guy could barely zipper his sweater, you know, was <laughs> my attitude. Until, until I had a child. And then at some point, I watched Mr. Rogers. And at first, you know, I was like, you know, doing it to be with my daughter. And it was, but slowly, he, I love Mr. Rogers. <laughs> Mr. Rogers is like the best thing that may have ever been on TV. And there was an article written about him about um, eight years, no, six years ago now, because he won an award, a Lifetime Achievement Award. And Tim Goodman from the Chronicle said this. He said, Mr. Rogers is the Dalai Lama of television. <laughs> that point just can't be refuted. There is no better spiritual leader in this forsaken medium than Fred Rogers. <laughs> Think about it. In the world of television, is there anyone more Zen than Mr. Rogers? No chance. Five minutes with this man and you're down to 14 heartbeats a minute. <laughs> he is he a de-stressing icon. A man, a man who takes his time to finish his sentences, thinks before he speaks, and when he finally utters something, it is slow, sweet, and warm. <laughs> Grown men suddenly want footy pajamas and some cocoa. <laughs> After a chat with Mr. Rogers. Once you bask in his soothing rays, it's clear he's being wasted on the youth. And he talks a little bit about that he won this award, you know, an Emmy, Lifetime Achievement. And uh, he goes on to say, he said, he's a man who garners an enormous respect. On the Emmy broadcast, he asked, and it's one of his signature things, is he asked people to take 30 seconds to remember a loved one or a mentor or a teacher 
who help them get to where they are. He's talking to all the stars, right, who are in the audience. He's saying, take 30 seconds to remember someone who helped you to get to where you are or a loved one. And, and uh, Tim Goodman writes, he says, all the big stars bowed their heads. Do you know how long 30 silent seconds on TV feels like? <laughs> and it's not like you can resist the man. He tells you to take 30, you do it. <laughs> so, Mr. Rogers brings me joy, always. And, and the joy, seeing him, the joy of his integrity, his, you know, he did think before he spoke. And he also had a great, um, this kind of integrity, I'd been a musician for many years, he really knew good music, at least what I think is good music, and or real music. He didn't. He wasn't so much enraptured with pop music, but he would bring really the authentic music, the authentic folk musics and blues and country musics um, of of our, our world on TV, and I love that because they're not often brought on TV. And I, I could go on and on about people who bring me joy. I'll say one more quickly. Sun Ra. Some of you may not know Sun Ra, probably a lot of you. And when I was a musician, he was one of my heroes. Sun Ra was an African-American musician who kept the band together, a, pretty, a big band, for 60-some years. And he spanned many of the jazz traditions from the 20s and, you know, from that era, era um, through, through the um, big band era of the 30s and 40s, and then into the 50s. And by the 50s, he was playing the most avant-garde music. There's these old films, 8 millimeter films of him with his musicians um, playing music, circumambulating the pyramids in Egypt, dressed up in these wild uh, outfits. And Sun Ra understood the shamanistic roots of music. He understood that music was about spirit. It wasn't about commercialism. And he never made it big, Sun Ra, but he didn't care because his integrity was so strong and his love of the, um, the nature of music was so clear. And, and I saw him perform many times, and he'd come out. One time I saw him, and he had one of these big hats, looked like a Tibetan Lama's hat, one of those big hats that Tibetan Lamas wear. And he had uh, sunglasses shaped like stars, right? And then he had this long gown that shimmered and, um, and big platform shoes. And he would dance around while the musicians were playing this totally out there, avant-garde, you know, cacophonous music. And he would sing his one big hit, which was called Space is the Place. Don't you want to go? Anyhow, one of my, one of my joys. Um, <laughs> Really, I could just start going now on and on. But, but for you to consider for yourself who brings you joy. And what is it that brings you joy? I mean, as I reflect on it, even now as I'm speaking, I see one of the things is the integrity of the people I'm describing is really one of the things that brings me joy. It, it inspires me um, when somebody really lives with a kind of integrity about their work or their art or their being or their dharma. Another way that I recognize um, um, joy in my daily life is often for me 
um, it's in nature, it's a place, and around people. In San Francisco, where I live and ride my bike, I often ride and for many years rode all along the water from like North Beach to the bridge and back. And you can go almost totally off-road. And Chrissy Field, when I first used to ride, there was kind of a mess. It, it, would, the, it was part of the Presidio and the Army had it and they, they hadn't taken good care of it. And then as it got transferred to the the Golden Gate National Recreation Area, they started to clean it up and take care of it and, and restore the wetlands that it originally was. And it just got beautiful and more beautiful and more beautiful. And, um, and so I'd ride my bike and then all of a sudden all these people were coming who didn't used to come and they're walking, they're old people and young people, people of every color and every race and every, you'd hear every language and young and old and couples and kids and grandparents and I ride by and I feel so much mudita because everybody's happy there. They're happy walking, not everybody every second, but there's a, a great happiness really in, and it's partly what's been done there. And you can feel the goodness of what we can do as people. Just this one little example of the restoring of the, the Chrissy Field. And, and then you, you can feel the ripples in the people walking through there. It's, it's just beautiful. And so there's mudita. Just, and then recognizing the mudita. I, I feel it. I know it as I ride. And it makes me happy to know it. In the Buddhist dictionary, when I looked up Mudita, it is said as one of the four immeasurables, the four immeasurable states or states of heart of a Buddha, Mudita manifests particularly as limitless joy over the liberation of others from suffering. And this is the joy of the Dharma, the joy of waking up, the joy of freedom our own waking up and our friends waking up. And it's, it's the, maybe the highest joy or the deepest joy. The joy of freedom, the joy that seeing that even with the pain or the difficulty or the vicissitudes of this world, there is a freedom that John was talking about last night. There's something behind the eyes. There is this independence when we're not clinging to anything in this world. And this is one, one other aspect of the joy of mudita. So I'll end with a poem from Shantideva talking about the joy of the Dharma, the joy of awakening. He says, as a blind man feels when he finds a pearl in a dustbin so I am amazed by the miracle of awakening rising in my consciousness. It is the nectar of immortality that delivers us from death, the treasure that lifts us into the wealth of giving to life, the tree that gives shade when we roam about, the bridge that takes us across the stormy river, the cool moon of compassion that calms our mind when it is agitated, the sun that dispels darkness, the butter made from the milk of kindness by churning it with dharma.
It is a feast of joy to which all are invited. I hope you can recognize the table at which you're already sitting. Let's sit for a moment, please. amazed by the miracle of awakening rising in my consciousness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.